me the Shema as Jesus would have done 2,000 years ago in synagogue. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad. Hear, O Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture passage for this morning is from the 16th chapter from Luke's Gospel, beginning uh, verses 1 through 9. This is a parable that Jesus told his disciples. There was a rich man who had a, a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and he said to him, What is it that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it fifty. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. This is the story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. A year and a half ago, my family gathered in Wimberley, Texas to celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. That's where they went on their honeymoon, and they wanted to take us all back to Wimberley. When my family is together now, my parents, my brother, my sister, my nieces, my nephews, there are 19 of us. We stayed in a place on the river that had a shared kitchen and a shared living area. The very first evening that we were together, I was in the kitchen helping to put dinner together when my five-year-old nephew came toward me with a bag of Doritos. Aunt Dinah, can I have these chips, he said. I said, well, if you have a sandwich, let me make you a sandwich to go with those chips. He said, but I don't want a sandwich. Why do I have to have a sandwich? To which I responded, well, those are the dinner rules. Chips go with sandwiches. So while I began to spread peanut butter on a slice of bread, he disappeared. Ten minutes later, my brother came into the kitchen and he grabbed the bag of Doritos. He said, Harrison is in his room crying and mumbling something about sandwich rules. I'm seizing this opportunity to be his favorite uncle. I'm giving him the chips. Later that evening, we gathered outside for a group picture. And a motto for the weekend formed... It was a sentence that we would use whenever we needed everyone's attention. You have to understand it was kind of a grassroots movement. It came from the people, and the chant went like this. 
There are no rules, Aunt Dinah. There are no rules, Aunt Dinah. How is it that 18 people who love me could spontaneously agree upon this motto? Well, it's because they all know that I love rules. Now, I was sitting in the stands at the Little League field this week, and, and there was an issue over a particular play, and the, the coach said through the fence to the father that was sitting next to me, I have the rule book, but I can't read it because I don't have my reading glasses. You know how sometimes the thought in your head that was meant for just your head comes out of your mouth and everybody around you hears it? Well, that happened to me. I said out loud, bring me the book. I'd love to read the rules. But that's our wonderfully level-headed coach's worst nightmare for me to actually know the rules of Little League Baseball. Because when I know the rules, my antenna are constantly scanning, making sure that they are followed and enforced. I have a hard time with the parable for today. The parable opens with a manager squandering wealth that doesn't belong to him. He's a middleman between a wealthy master and more than likely some tenant farmers. The amount of oil and wheat that is mentioned in the story adds up to more than 10 years of average income in the ancient world. So this guy is dealing with a large sum of material wealth. The word that is used to describe how he handles the money is the same word that is used to describe what the younger son does with the father's wealth in the preceding parable. He squanders it. So this guy is careless. He's shady. He's probably even downright dishonest. He could be thrown into prison for what he's done. I would say he should be thrown into prison. And when he's not, when he's not, my brain just stops tracking with this story. You're just going to let him go. And then in the end, praise him for being clever. Clever for reducing what rightfully belongs to the master. I just don't like it. Jesus follows this story with the words, The children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. This is the only time that Jesus will use the phrase or title children of light. Paul will use it. John will use it later in the New Testament letters when addressing second generation Christians. But first-generation Christians understood the title to be a nickname, a nickname that the Jewish sectarian group, the Essenes, gave themselves. They called themselves the true sons of light. So when Jesus uses the term, his listeners would think about the group that about a hundred years before had withdrawn from Jerusalem to live in the desert to protest the way that the temple was being run, and the Roman rule of the land. They were a highly organized group, the Essenes. They did a lot of copying of scripture and writing about it. This is the group that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
When I was talking to David Magnitsky about this passage, he said that the modern day equivalent would be that if, if the Branch Davidians had been a noble group, because the Essenes had good theology, they had integrity about marriage, and their intentions were pure, but they were true isolationists. They wanted to be away from the world. They collect all, collected all of the money of their members, and they rejected business ties with outsiders. Part of the new member pledge for the Essenes was to love all the children of the light and to hate all the children of darkness, everyone who was outside the group. They preached something that theologians now call double predestination, which means that God had already determined who would be saved, that was them, and who would be damned, that was everyone outside of the group. This was very different from what Jesus was teaching. For Jesus, everyone had a chance. Jesus is continually talking to those who follow him about making a choice. The power is yours. Make a choice choice to serve God and serve the kingdom. It's no surprise to me that this very tactic of choice for kingdom was honored in the life of Reverend Billy Graham. To anyone who would listen, Graham encouraged people to make that same choice. Make a choice for Jesus' way. This parable is told to the disciples, and the Pharisees are within earshot. And everyone who hears the story is thinking of the Essenes. And so in this context, I see that there are two qualities of the dishonest manager that are worth highlighting as clever. First of all, the manager or the steward takes the tactic of making deals with people. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't withdraw when the charges are made. He doesn't isolate himself. Instead, he thinks there is a strategy that I can take, a strategy that will endear me, a strategy that will protect me. He sees that there's a payoff if he makes a deal, if he makes deals with his master's clients, that they will take care of him, that they will provide shelter for him. And while we can question his motives, he's a scoundrel, no doubt, his action is then recommended as clever or shrewd. Stay connected to people. And I think Jesus is saying, especially in the context of Luke's gospel, stay connected to those who are outsiders. In the parable of the great banquet that comes immediately before this parable, just a few chapters earlier, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the very street people are brought in for the feast, the outsiders. And then in just a few subsequent chapters, Jesus will invite himself to dinner at the home of a notorious tax collector, Zacchaeus, who desperately wants acceptance. And after his interaction with Jesus, Zacchaeus will give half of what he has to the poor, and he will restore what he has stolen four times over. I'm not certain. I'm not certain that I can overemphasize the importance of this quality when our modern tendency is to put ourselves in like-minded groups. 
to look for fellow children of light, fearing that interactions with those who are not in our group would taint us or damage us or destroy us. There's a better way, and the better way is making deals, it's helping others, it's getting our hands dirty. There's a story told about Mother Teresa in Calcutta. She's cleaning the oozing wounds of an emaciated leper. A wealthy man passes by her and comments, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. She says in response, neither would I, but I would gladly do it for Christ. There is a thread in the story that connects this parable with the Old Testament book of Ezra. It's the specific amounts of oil and wheat that are mentioned. The same amounts mentioned in the parable are offered by the Persian king to the prophet when he is freed to return to Jerusalem from exile. I have to wonder if the suggestion by the specific amounts isn't, if I can bless you through the Persians, no one is too dangerous. No one is too blasphemous. Go ahead. Get your hands dirty. Connect with the outsiders. Interact with my people. If the first clever quality of the manager is that he risks connection with people, then the second commendable quality is simply that he's generous. Never mind that the money doesn't directly belong to him. It's within his control. The tenant farmers are relieved of some of their debt, and the master is praised throughout the land for his generosity, and that sits well with him when the word about him is that he is generous. He, in turn, praises the manager as clever, as shrewd, as smart. It's strange to me that the master doesn't seem to care that he's been swindled the second time. He cared the first time. He cared the first time about losing money. It must be, it must be that it's better to be thought of as generous than wealthy. Or maybe, maybe it is that the master has endless wealth. You can't make a dent in it. There's endless grace ready for me to take and to share. John Wesley preached this. Love is the highest gift of God. All of our revelations are little compared to love. There is nothing higher in religion. If you are looking for anything else, you are looking wide of the mark. You need to know, you probably already know, that I am often right. I often do things the exact proper and right way that they should be done. But when I act without compassion or without generosity, when I am stingy with my heart, I am, as Wesley would say, wide of the mark.